following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. Good afternoon. My name is Jay Raman, and I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. Uh, it's my pleasure to host another episode in our educational podcast series. And periodically, we like to focus on certain topics covered within our core curriculum. And today's one of those episodes focusing on the topic of geriatric oncology. Uh, it's my pleasure uh, to host Dr. Adrian Bernstein. Uh, Dr. Bernstein is a urological oncologist at the Department of Urology at Albany Medical Center. Uh, she completed her urology residency training at New York Presbyterian Hospital while Cornell Medical Center followed by an SUO fellowship at the Fox Chase Cancer Center. And while she was at Cornell, she also completed a, a master's in epidemiology and health services research. Um, Adrian, first of all, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Really um, our pleasure in having you here today. Thank you, Dr. Roman, for having me today. Um, I'm very excited to be talking about geriatric oncology and the specific con considerations that we have for our older or frailer patients. Yeah, I, I would certainly tell you, uh, I think this is a great topic, and uh, it's interesting. Uh, I, I feel like I'm learning more about it. One of my new partners, Dr. Tulika Garg, um, does a lot of work in this space, and and I certainly, she sort of opened my eyes that um, as we have um, an aging population that's thankfully living longer, the unfortunate side of it is many of them are going to develop urological cancers and and you know it's I think it's incumbent upon us to be a little bit more thoughtful on you know how we um, how we look at these patients and how we choose to take care of them so really uh, looking forward in advance to some of your thoughts and um, your expertise so maybe I'll just start um, high level uh, maybe give our listeners some sense of um, you know, the aging population, uh, their needs, and, and maybe this is a bigger question than just urology. I'm sure it is. So maybe just give us a 20,000 foot view and then we'll go from there. So I, I know that we've all seen the graphs and projections of what's supposed to happen with our population over the next coming decades. And particularly because there's been lower fertility rates and increased longevity, there's been a rapid growth of the older population across the world. And this is particular to the U.S. as well. And in the U.S. alone, it's anticipated that the number of Americans 65 and older will double between 2000 and 2040, and that the number of people 85 and older will actually quadruple. So one in five Americans will be over the age of 65. So this is a very um, important topic as it affects much of our population. And we've long recognized that, for example, our pediatric patients have particular concerns and need to be addressed in a specific manner. And our older patients kind of on the other end of the spectrum start being um, at increased risk for geriatric conditions or frailty. And while very often we do use the words of aging and older, um, continuous with frailty, they are different. And so it's not that we need to treat all of our older adults the same, but just be mindful that as, um, as we age, that we're predisposed to having less reserve um, or the ability to weather the stressful events of our life. So, uh, you know, I think you make an excellent point here, which is that aging doesn't necessarily equate with frailty, meaning that that just because you were an older patient doesn't necessarily mean you're a frail patient. I feel like I've seen a number of 
talks over time. And I, I, I feel like the one slide I see over and over again is that picture of that sort of 70-year-old muscular male and then sort of another 70-year-old male who looks anything but muscular, sort of, um, sort of echoing that point. So, I mean, I guess, I guess as we talk about this concept of, you know, evaluating the older patient or the geriatric patient, what, what does that really entail? Like, what, what are the sort of the key components that we should be thinking about um, as we look at these patient, this patient population? So kind of continuing on with that theme, um, that age is part of it. So we often use these screening tools in patients who are above a certain age and looking at the study and, you know, the talks that you've referenced where they have those slides of the person who's older, um, who looks amazing and is just skydiving out of a plane or on their motorcycle doing all kinds of wonderful things um, versus the person who's a little bit less uh, robust. It really is this relatively new concept. So frailty is a term that was coined in the 1970s, um, and it's been right, widely used in geriatric literature since then. Unfortunately, it's only starting to cross over to the surgical literature in the last decade, two decades. Um, and when it comes to assessing frailty or the geriatric, um, when we talk about the comprehensive geriatric assessment, this is a screening process that's done by a trained professional. And it really looks at all of the domains um, of a person's health, looking at their not just their functional static status, but also their mental health, their nutritional status. Polypharmacy is a major issue in our olding, uh, aging population. If you look at the number of medications that were even available um, 20, 30 years ago, it's nearly doubled. Um, and when we look at our patients over the age of 65, um, over-medication is responsible for about 28% of hospitalizations, and these um, and these patients make up 13% of the population, but they use 30% of all prescription medications. So this is an area that I think we, um, even as urologists, can be very mindful because we often say, you know, oh, we can give a medication for this, not understanding how we're adding to all these other medications, but also as they come out of the hospital, um, kind of taking a look at what they were put on temporarily and what we can take back off in order to help decrease their total number of medications. Other parts of the comprehensive uh, geriatric assessment include things like advanced care planning, um, social support, and looking at their comorbidities and cognitive status. Now, this process is very cumbersome and it requires time and a dedicated professional. And so for this reason, it's not always accessible. I know not every hospital even has a geriatric team available to them. And so one of the things that has been done in order to make this more accessible is the idea of making just a brief cognitive, um, excuse me, a brief geriatric assessment. And these range from screening tools that look at a few of these domains. So whether it's looking at the number of medications that someone is on, they're um, briefly kind of assessing their mobility with a timed get up and go, or asking them just how they feel relative to their peer group, whether they feel that they're uh, more fit or less fit, tend to be very good screening tools in order for us to better stratify who would 
benefit from a more comprehensive assessment and maybe sending a referral to a geriatrician. So I think, I mean, you highlighted on one point that I was sort of thinking to myself as you were articulating it, which is, you know, I feel like the way that we used to do it or the way that probably is not the right way to do it is it's sort of like, does somebody pass the eyeball test, right? But but in reality, that's that's a very crude measure of uh, of uh, frailty. It's a very uh, incomplete measure of some of the other uh, cognitive elements or um, nutritional status. So, you know, when you think about a surgical practice, right, you know, you're a busy surgeon, I'm a busy surgeon, you think about, we should be doing this, it's the right thing to do. Um, but as you alluded to, it does take some time. And especially, you probably have to have some knowledge of of what are the right tools to use. So just practically speaking, like in, at your practice, do you, do you have like a, a geriatric service or an internal medicine or a family medicine um, cohort that kind of serves as this um, and maybe partner in evaluation as you're looking at patients from the surgical side of things? So it's very exciting time at Albany Med right now because we're building a practice to do this. We're partnering with a geriatrician who does home visits as well as a hospitalist specialized in palliative care in order to bridge, create a program that can bridge the pre-op inpatient and post-op um, experience for a patient. And part of that um, is understanding the tools that you have available to you at your institution. So while you might not have a geriatrician, you may have palliative care or, or a supportive oncology service, and they tend to have a lot of the similar skills that make them amazing counterparts. Similarly, internal medicine is seeing the same increasing aging of their population. So their development of tools and skills for understanding and tailoring their care to a geriatrician is increasing as well and um, being refined throughout the decades. I think that as far as what you can do in your practice, while we all want to be more scientific and precise and have a specific tool to say, okay, this person is someone who will benefit from um, a additional consideration versus this person should fly through surgery. We do know that um, the eyeball test is not to be discredited, that we do take in a lot of information when we do that. While we're looking at nutritional status, we can tell if someone has recently lost a lot of weight by the number of, um, of belt holes that they've moved, for example. And these are all the things that we're kind of picking at, how they walk into the room, getting them up onto the table when you do your exam. Is it hard or is it easy? Might not be a formal timed up and go, but it does give you an idea of their physical status. So there have been several programs that have developed very robust um, preoperative programs. And for the majority of them, surgeon preference or surgeon referral has always been included. So even if they use a dedicated, so some of them are fully based off of surgeon referral, and some of them do have some screening components, but they always have the allowance for um, entry into the program based off of a surgeon's concern. Hmm. And and maybe the one other element that you talked about that I'd like to pick your brain on is um, this sort of concept of of how do you how do you in your practice sort of manage this polypharmacy? So. You know, I'll see some folks, and especially in the bladder cancer realm, uh, they're on a laundry list of medications. And um, I'm, I'm not always sure we're as thoughtful as we need to be because we're sort of focused on 
you know, what is going to be needed for that patient to get in and out of the hospital and whether that's adding medications on, antibiotics, uh, uh, pain medication. And then you look at their, their list of medications that they're on and, and it's an impressive list and now you've just added to it. <laughs> is there anything that you've sort of have, even if you've only added to it in the short term, you've added to it. And, and is there anything that you use as a tool at Albany in this sort of polypharmacy realm of, of how to get a better sense of what somebody's on and, and therefore what might be an adverse reaction to the combination of meds that they've been put on? So I think that this is one of those places where um, leaning on our colleagues is incredibly useful. We've had, I, at Albany Med and other institutions I've been at, there's been amazing pharmacists that, you know, will bring to light some of the interactions between medications. And I think listening to those concerns is incredibly important. Um, I think always asking your patient before you start a new medication, in, you know, if this is, if being on an additional medication is something that they would like um, is important. Sometimes we, particularly I think with the, the voiding function, because even though I, my practice is mostly oncology based, we, I still see a lot of older men who have um, some decreased flow or I'll see women with overactivity. And, you know, we'll talk about behavioral modification in both realms. And then if we're talking about medication, we're, I really want to make sure that they're, that the benefit that's derived from the medication is worth adding an extra medication to their list. So what, what are some tools um, and how do we apply them into our surgical practices? Like, are there, are there certain screening tools that you use or that, that are well published on that we um, as surgeons perhaps could incorporate into you know, our, our always dreadfully short amount of time that we have available to spend with patients, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes. Um, what's out there and, and what could we use and how should we incorporate this into our office evaluation? So there are some really wonderful tools that have been created, a lot of them coming from the oncology, oncology world over to the surgical oncology world. Um, for example, the uh, G8 or the geriatric aid is a very quick eight question I, um, survey. It's scored zero to 17, less than or equal to uh, 14. It says, okay, this patient's at high risk for a geriatric condition. You should send them for a comprehensive geriatric assessment. The thing that I thought was most interesting about looking at that survey in particular was that a lot of the questions did um, go back to nutrition. And I think that's something that we often forget to think about as physicians. It's not part of our medical education historically. I think newer generations of, of doctors are having more of it in their education, but it really does remind us that um, your nutrition is a very important part of your physical uh, status and your functional performance. And so it does take that into consideration. Another one is the Vulnerable uh, Elder Survey, which is also a, a short uh, questionnaire, 13 items, um, scored zero to 10, and a cutoff of three or greater identifies a vulnerable elderly patient. Um, that one's a little bit more heavily weighted by age. So some people like it for that reason, and some people find that it overemphasizes age. Hmm. And 
going back to kind of how we started this conversation, that's an important consideration because when you look at meta-analyses of risk factors for adverse events after surgery, age is one of those things that tends to be a surrogate marker for the actual risk factors, whether it's number of comorbidities, number of medications. Um, we know that smoking is also generational to some extent and um, just overall frailty. And so when you start adding those into the model, age becomes much less important. And and maybe just from your experience, like what do you, is there one in particular that you use? You'd sort of, is there one that practically is just fit into your practice? So I haven't fit one into my practice as of yet. Um, the G8 has been the one that I've highlighted as the one that I thought was most approachable um, and easy to fit into a practice as it tends to incorporate things that you're already screening for. Your nurses are already um, going over medications when you're triaging, and that's one of the questions, how many medications you're on. They look at weight loss, and those are metrics that we're already capturing. So it's fits in very nicely to a clinical practice. And and you alluded to this a little bit, but but um, maybe talk a little bit about sort of, you know, co-managing these patients. So, I mean, you're looking at it from obviously as a specialist and a surgical specialist, these patients are coming to you um, by and large for some specific problem. And, um, and you may or may not do surgery on them, but if it's cancer, often you will. Um, sort of what's the rationale for co-managing who who are who sort of the ideal partners to co-manage these patients with and you know are there any sort of you know success stories out there who who seem to do it well so co-management is really not a new um, concept it comes out of the orthopedic uh, literature, um, and they've been looking at co-management for several decades, really finding that even in randomized controlled studies that were published in um, high-powered journals, um, that after elective surgery, patients that are co-managed have decreased complication, decreased length of stay, and very importantly, without increased cost. Um, and also that when they look at provider preference to the co-management strategy versus um, kind of the standard of care, the traditional strategy, both the providers and the nurses associated with uh, those patients prefer the co-management strategy. Hmm. And so this is something that's really developed a lot of momentum in the orthopedic literature. And over the last um, decade or so, it started to bubble up into the general surgery and the oncologic um, surgery literature, urology as well. And so when you talk about success stories, there are a few institutions that really um, develop these programs early on. Um, some that come to mind is Duke. They have their POSH clinic. And this is, again, surgeon referral-based. It's 65 to 84-year-old uh, patients. It's a one- to two-hour preoperative geriatric assessment they meet prior to surgery. They do this very extensive assessment. They work on care coordination, and they uh, co-manage the patient as they are in-house after their procedure, and then they really coordinate the discharge. Um, and POSH stands for Preoperative Optimization of Senior Health. And doing this, they were able to demonstrate lower readmission rates, decreased length of stay, and fewer complications. Um, 
More recently, Memorial Sloan Kettering published their series. So starting in 2015, they developed a geriatric uh, co-management program. And this was for patients that were 75 years and older. These patients were, again, physician selected. They were um, sent to the uh, geriatric PAT clinic, pre-admission testing clinic, as opposed to their standard uh, pre-admission testing clinic. And then these patients were co-managed and compared to patients that were not referred to uh, the geriatric co-management, patients that had geriatric co-management had a reduced 90-day mortality rate, 44.3% uh, versus 8.9%. Hmm. So it's pretty significant. And then when they looked at their multivariable analysis, it was a 60% reduction in the odds of 90-day uh, mortality. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. You, you you think about programs like this and Obviously, to get a program like this off the ground, there's an investment, right? It's it's uh, investment of resources, investment of people. Um, but certainly, when you you I think about the data you shared for the Posh program, when you look at a lot of hospital-based metrics, right? Timely discharge, reducing readmissions, the MSKDCC data, decreased mortality. Um, it seems like the cost that one would invest to have such a program likely more than yields dividends if you're looking at just hospital-based costs or even from a societal purpose, just, you know, mortality or morbidity after procedures. Um, your thoughts on that? So I think that this is definitely a, a very sound investment for any hospital to make. And to that extent, the American College of Surgeons has actually created a verification program in order to recognize hospitals that are um, putting forth effort in order to focus um our care for our elderly or older patients. And this program was rolled out in 2019. The first few reports of it have been kind of hitting the press in the last month or so. Um, and it's again showing that when we take a systematic approach to how we care for our, our older patients, which tend to be some of our more complex patients, we're able to decrease our uh, length of stay, um, decrease uh, complication rates. And so these are benefits to the patients, benefits to the hospital. One of the other things that our studies traditionally haven't looked at, but is being pushed to look at more often is place to discharge. So one of the things when you survey older patients who have cancer, they uh, maintaining independence becomes just as important as maintaining health. And so we often talk about, you know, things like length of stay, complication, and morbidity, but we don't actually talk about their functional status after surgery and what our surgery did to their long-term independence. And so when we look at patients um, who are frail, who are having elective, or who are older, who are having elective surgery, we find that somewhere around 60% of these patients will have some baseline degree of frailty. And about a quarter of these patients will have decreased functional capacity at 90 days. So the other thing that we haven't talked about is a lot of these programs focus on discharge planning in order to make sure that the patient has the support they need in order to try and get them home as opposed to needing to go to an, uh, rehab if it or have them, them be able to identify an appropriate rehab that's where they would like to be um, and facilitate a smoother discharge. 
So maybe in the last uh, five or seven minutes here, I want to talk a little bit about uh, palliative care and um, maybe start with the first sort of um, maybe debunk the myth, right? That I feel like oftentimes people equate palliative care equals hospice. And uh, it seems like that that is a, a very incorrect assumption. Talk to us a little bit about palliative care, how it differentiates from this concept of hospice. Um, maybe start with that and then we'll, we'll chat about a few other things. So I think that exactly like you were saying that palliative care is different than hospice. They often get lumped together because hospice can be an extension of palliative care, but the flow doesn't go in the opposite direction. And if you think about just what it means to palliate, it means to relieve suffering. So all of our patients can benefit from palliation in some way or another. And this is the field that is really dedicated to the relief of suffering for patients with serious illness. And also, typically with palliative care, there's this extension to the family or the support team that's caring for that patient. And as we talk about our older patients in particular, these patients often are not coming to appointments alone. They're coming with significant others, with children, uh, with, with friends who are there to help them through this uh, disease because it's a lot to process a diagnosis of cancer to take all, in all of that information, but also just the logistics of making it to every appointment um, can be a, a burden. And so with palliative care, a lot of the focus is on pain control and any um, patient that is, um, and any patient is eligible for palliative care. This is distinctly uh, different from hospice. And these are patients who have a prognosis that is life-limiting, and typically it's less than six months um, following a typical course. And obviously there are always exceptions, and we, we have these stories of patients um, that go on either end of that bell-shaped curve. But that's one of the key distinctions between hospice and uh, palliative care. Hospice is also really geared towards routine home services, respite for caregivers, um, or inpatient care. Um, but palliative care tends to be more ambulatory in nature. So when should we be thinking about discussing palliative care referrals, for example, with let's just take the urologic oncology population. When should we be thinking about palliative care consults and, and referrals to palliative care? So I think with palliative care, very often um, a lot of the role is, is um, filled by a medical oncologist that we may be partnering with. I'm thinking of our patients who are getting new adjuvant chemotherapy or are on um, or are on any chemotherapy regimen, the medical oncologist is performing that service of palliation with a lot of the sort of supportive medications that they're providing. After that acute period, though, if there is a patient that is having continued distress from their symptoms, whether it's nausea, physical discomfort, that would be a patient that would benefit from palliative care um, referral. I think one of the un one of the things with palliative care, just like with geriatrics, it's one of the fields where we have a desperate need for more providers. And so being judicious with who you send 
over isn't necessarily because um, the patient doesn't necessarily qualify or would benefit, but because we want to make sure that uh, we aren't overwhelming our colleagues. And and how should we be phrasing this to patients and families? I, I can imagine that it, for, for somebody that is not familiar with what the goal of palliative care is, who doesn't really understand, as you articulated very clearly, the, definite, the difference between palliative care and hospice, um, that there might be some, I don't want to say panic, but misinterpretation of the intentions if you have somebody referred for palliative care. How do you sort of reassure the, the patient and, and the, the families and the caregivers of the intent when you put this such a referral in? I think it's about being honest with the patient um, and acknowledging the fact that there's this wide health misconception that palliative care and hospice are one and the same and to outline the differences between the two and explain that, you know, I think that this person would be a valuable part of our team. It does not mean that I'm no longer going to be treating you because I think that's often a fear is that you, that this is a sign that you're handing them over to someone else and that they're done with their curative portion of their treatment plan. And then to just reiterate into that point, reiterating the fact that palliative care can, is there to support um, a patient through their disease and whether that is during a curative intent or as more comfort care, that they're there for that whole spectrum of care. Great. Well, Adrian, I, I really uh, want to thank you for your time. Uh, you really sort of uh, highlighted, I think, the, the key points in a very, very articulate manner. And I uh, really appreciate you uh, taking about 30 minutes of your day on a Friday afternoon uh, to have this conversation. So first of all, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate the time and, and thank you for bringing um, the attention to these very important concepts um, and certainly for our audience, uh, we want to thank you for your time and your attention. Um, for any additional information, uh, please visit uh, us at auanet.org university uh, and specifically referring to the, the core curriculum uh, geriatric oncology section. Adrian, thanks so much. Have a wonderful weekend. All right. You too. Take care. Thanks.